written for that purpose. They were written separately, but we discovered when we looked at each other's PowerPoints that they were really close in the themes, that we thought it would be better to treat them as if they were one paper. So I will do my paper first, and then Dennis will do his paper, and when he's finished, we'll take questions on either paper or both papers. I, I think you'll see how close they are in their approaches and themes when you've heard both of the papers. So that makes sense to do it that way. My mic's going in and out. Okay. Yeah, that's been happening all over the building all both days, unfortunately. But thanks. I'll try not, not to have that happen. <laughs> now, um, I want to begin this paper with three epigrams, three quotations. Um, although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin... Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Everybody in this room probably knows who said that. Theistic evolution may be described as an anesthetic which deadens the pain while the patient's religion is being gradually removed. Or a way station on the highway that leads from Christian faith to know God land. That comes from a stump speech that William Jennings Bryan gave all around the country in 1922 and 23, when he was trying to persuade state legislatures to pass bills prohibiting the teaching of evolution in publicly funded schools. You might not recognize the author of this third quotation but Shaler Matthews was the dean of the second largest divinity school in the United States at the time he said this, and the most influential divinity school by far. The University of Chicago Divinity School produced more doctoral students than anyone else, and it was also known as the center of modernism, modernism in, in, in Protestant religion. Uh, the, the modernist or, or radical liberal movement in Protestantism that began in the late 19th century and in some ways is still with us today, as we'll see, uh, though other, other alternatives to that have appeared as well on the non-conservative uh, end. Here's what Shaler Matthews wrote in his autobiography in 1936. Speaking about Henry Ward Beecher, who was the... Um, brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, and Henry Ward Beecher was a famous liberal Protestant preacher in Brooklyn. When Henry Ward Beecher and other liberal preachers accepted evolution, their evangelical brothers looked upon them with suspicion. Scientific method had not reached religious thought. It was only when educational processes had ceased to be controlled by the study of classical literature and grew more contemporary, that orthodox theology was felt to be incompatible with intellectual integrity. Now, the quotations I have just read encapsulate the point I want to explore. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution has led many people, some of them deeply religious and some of them deeply anti-religious, to conclude that modern science is at war with religion. 
especially, but not only, Christianity. Such that believing in evolution leads almost inevitably to atheism, or at least that evolution makes traditional Christian doctrine untenable. Although Darwin himself denied that his theory was necessarily atheistical, to quote him, he probably came to think that a respectful agnosticism was the best that one could do. At least, it was the best that he could do. Let each man hope and believe what he can, Darwin told the first American Darwinian, Asa Gray, who was also the first theistic evolutionist of the Darwinian type. Since then, a lot of men, and a lot of women as well, have hoped and believed what they could. And my assignment is to try to make sense of that. What does Darwin mean for religion? More specifically, since I'm an historian of science rather than a theologian or a philosopher or a scientist, what has Darwin been said to mean for religion? Since that's an historical question. Well, as you probably know, it is actually my own discipline, the history of science, that has led the way uh, in debunking the all too prevalent cultural myth that science and religion are engaged in an ongoing inevitable conflict, with science winning the war for cultural and epistemic territory. Though the conflict view ultimately derives from the European Enlightenment, its most influential expression was American. This is one of those cases in which you can judge the books by their covers, or at least by their titles. In 1874, NYU chemist John William Draper published his History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. And in 1896, the first president of Cornell, Andrew Dixon White, published A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. Now, you know, it's not easy to say which one of these two books is worse in terms of its scholarship, but my vote goes to White. Although he was the first president of the American Historical Association, White seems to have consulted primary sources as opposed to secondary sources about as often as he watched television. <laughs> Consequently, his book is chock full of manufactured facts invented or misattributed quotations, and unsupportable interpretations. Draper is not a great deal better, yet both books remain widely influential today, perhaps because the shoddy scholarship and outright nonsense they contain is central to the apologetics of contemporary unbelief. Why else would White's contribution to historical fiction be available for free download at infidels.org or Draper's book at positiveatheism.org. Now, much of my own scholarly work has been based on debunking the conflict view while helping to create a more accurate history of science and Christianity. So why then have I begun this talk by quoting three examples that illustrate the presence of apparent conflict between science and Christian beliefs? In short, because many have perceived conflict over evolution. To be sure, other things have also taken place. 
which contradict the warfare view, and I will come back to this. But conflict has been perhaps the primary mode of an interaction in this particular case. Historically, there have been four main patterns that still govern most religious responses to evolution today. One is conflict, resulting in the rejection of evolution as valid science. The second is conflict, resulting in the outright rejection um, of, divine divine, of uh, most types of theism as contradictory to science. The third is conflict, resulting in the rejection of divine transcendence and the wholesale reformulation of traditional theological beliefs in something that looks to me more like a monologue than a dialogue, although many of the participants of the modern dialogue hold this view. And finally, complementarity, in which traditional theological beliefs are upheld, either by putting them into a higher realm that is separate from scientific conclusions, or else by affirming them alongside scientific conclusions in what looks to me more like a genuine dialogue than any of the other patterns. Now let's look at a few specific examples of each. We'll begin with this one. And in order to see uh, what this is about, we want to understand the definition of the word fundamentalist. The word fundamentalist was first used in print in the United States in July 1920. It was used by the editor of the Baptist Weekly Magazine, the Watchman Examiner, and he used it uh, to describe himself uh, and a group of like-minded individuals who were willing, in his words, to do battle royal for the fundamentals of the faith. It, it, it carries with it overtones of anti-modernity. For much of the next decade after 1920, American Protestants fought bitter internal battles over who would control their denominational seminaries, mission boards, and local churches. While those liberal Protestants who called themselves modernists, on the other hand, sought to accommodate traditional Christian beliefs to modern science, politics, and culture, their conservative opponents were eager to do battle royal for the fundamentals in the militaristic language of the Baptist preacher who coined the word. Issues involving science were particularly contentious. Coming to head in the 1925 show trial of John Scopes for teaching evolution in a Tennessee high school. William Jennings Bryan, the fundamentalist leader who assisted the prosecution, said, as I quoted at the start of the lecture, that theistic evolution was an anesthetic which deadens the pain while the patient's religion is being gradually removed, thus shortcutting any serious attempt at a productive conversation. As Brian told the editor of a fundamentalist magazine a year before the Scopes trial, evolution was, quote, the cause of modernism and the progressive elimination of the vital truths of the Bible. Now, the, the cartoon um, you're looking at here was carried out by Ernest James Pace, the leading fundamentalist cartoonist of the 1920s. 
for those of you who were in the lectures yesterday um, on Friday about history of American religion and science, um, you you heard me tell this particular story. I won't repeat all of that today. Um, I don't have time to repeat all of that. But here's how Brian put it. The Christian who accepted evolution, in Brian's opinion, would inevitably descend a staircase of, increase, of, of increasing unbelief. Excuse me, you want setting four, three, please, three, three. Thank you. The Christian who accepted evolution would almost inevitably descend a staircase of increasing unbelief, on which, as he said, there is no stopping place short of atheism. In other words, the staircase is a slippery slope or an escalator. It's a vivid image, and Ernest James Pace soon converted it into this cartoon. This cartoon, as Brian said, will show the influence of modernism on the three people with whom he is most concerned. The student, the preacher who substitutes education for religion, as Brian said, and the scientist. At the top of the staircase, you have a student stepping from the Bible not infallible to man not made in God's image. Halfway down, you find a middle-aged man, as Brian says, dressed like a minister with a Bible in his hand, stepping from no deity, which means no deity of Jesus, to no atonement. At the bottom of the staircase, a scientist stepping from agnosticism to atheism. And Pace, of course, in his skill as a cartoonist, a former political cartoonist in Chicago, uses the light and shadow to add some commentary. So the student is in the light at the top of the staircase. The minister has clasped hands with the darkness halfway down, and the scientist is enshrouded in darkness at the bottom. Now, two of Brian's concerns are illustrated here. His fear that evolution undermined biblical authority and thereby Christian doctrine, and his fear that evolution represented the nose of the camel of naturalism entering the tent of a religion founded on supernatural events. The latter concern about naturalism is evident in another Pace cartoon. And if you want to understand the contemporary intelligent design movement well, I think, you should look at this cartoon, which predates it, its existence uh, by about uh, 60 years at least. In this cartoon, we see true science which never wears blinders, the title here. But this is science falsely so-called. Uh, that, as I discussed in the, in the seminar on Friday, this term science falsely so-called has been used to label historical science. First, historical geology in the 19th century, and then evolution in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as science that's not legitimately founded on the facts. And the science is wearing blinders called methodological naturalism. Miracles never happen. As a result, the scientist is unable to see the evidence for Christ's miracles. Modern creationists echo Brian on these points, um, though I will skip over this without further comment. Brian also believed that evolution led to, had led to cutthroat capitalism in America. You know, it's not, it's not hard for, to find many examples of this when you look back, but I, want, I won't list them here. 
And also, he thought, it had led to chauvinistic naturalism, nationalism and militarism in Germany, culminating in the First World War. But I haven't time to sketch that fairly either. Suffice it to say, it was the religious liberals, not the fundamentalists, who were also keen on eugenics and other forms of social Darwinism during the Scopes era. Uh, the recent film, Expelled, tried to connect Darwin directly to Hitler in a way that reminds me of Brian's concerns, although Hitler wasn't on the landscape then. Other religious objections to evolution need to be mentioned. Charles Hodge said in 1874 that Darwinism, as he called it, is atheism specifically because natural selection denies design. Philip Johnson, founder of the modern intelligent design movement, says precisely the same thing. But even pre-Darwinian forms of evolution, forms that were clearly and deeply teleological, were sometimes said to be atheistic and often seen as threatening to Christianity. So ultimately, I don't think, ladies and gentlemen, that design is really the issue for a lot of folks who object here. Like Brian, some critics of those theories believed that biological continuity between humans and other animals threatened the image of God and undermined the basis for morality. Thus, Adam Sedgwick, who taught geology to Darwin at Cambridge on field trips, responded to Robert Chambers's anonymously published book, The Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation, with the following words. This is a book that advanced an evolutionary argument of a Lamarckian type in the generation before Darwin. And Sedgwick said, as you can see, if the book be true, the labors of sober induction are in vain, religion is a lie, human law is a mass of folly and a base injustice, morality is moonshine, our labors for the black people of Africa were works of madmen and man and woman are only better beasts. Or the enormously popular Scottish evangelical writer, Hugh Miller, saw common ancestry as a frontal assault on immortality. If humans are continuous with animals, he said, we must either hold the monstrous belief that all the vitalities, that is, all the living things, are individually and inherently immortal and undying, or that human souls are not so. The difference between the dying and the undying, between the spirit of the brute that goeth downward and the spirit of the man that goeth upward is not a difference infinitesimally or even atomically small. It possesses all the breadth of eternity to come, and it is an infinitely great distance. In America, the Hebrew scholar Taylor Lewis wrote that Chambers' book is atheism, blank atheism, cold, cheerless, heartless atheism, because it seemed to undermine special providence and divine moral governance of the universe. Or Edward Hitchcock, the president of Amherst College and arguably the leading antebellum American geologist and natural theologian, had the same view. We are reduced at once, he said, to materialism and atheism. Now, Lewis and Hitchcock would entirely agree with Oxford zoologist Richard Dawkins if they were living today. So well known are the best-selling books 
by Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and others, that no one who pays attention either to the culture wars or to religion can possibly have missed them. I suspect everyone in the room knows what I'm talking about. Collectively, those authors have become known as the new atheists, and I think that's an appropriate term. Although the rejection of theism on the basis of evolution is not entirely new, I cannot think of any historical precedent for the plethora of books and articles we're now seeing, aggressively advancing what I can only call an evangelical atheism on the back of evolution. Indeed, in my opinion, this is a new form of the religion of science, a term that's been used in America since at least 1860 to mean various different things. And I'll provide a nice example of the religion of science later, a different kind of religion of science. Of course, Dawkins denies that he's doing religion, but of course he really is. As Carl Guyberson and the late Mariano Artigas have shown, Dawkins and several other scientists who write for large audiences are functioning as oracles of science, offering readers precisely what religion has always offered, a creation story, a view of our place in the universe, an eschatology, and a guide for behavior. Now, it is not simply that Dawkins and company believe that evolution makes God obsolete, or even that the sword of God compatible with Darwinian evolution would have to be a blind watchmaker. As Terry Eagleton points out, Dawkins holds that the existence or non-existence of God is a scientific hypothesis, which is open to rational demonstration. And given the conclusion that he draws, Dawkins functions effectively as a natural atheologian, the devil's chaplain, as he styles himself. Now, for thinkers in this category, there might not be any thinkers at all in any other category, since only they are the brights, as explained by philosopher Daniel Dennett. Dennett says, what is a bright? A bright is a person with a naturalist as opposed to a supernaturalist worldview. We brights don't believe in ghosts or elves or the Easter Bunny or God. Now, the views of the new atheists are what most scholars probably have in mind when they speak of the warfare of science and religion. Their particular version of the warfare view, however, is more virulent and more vociferous than A.D. White's subtler and gentler version and therefore more readily visible. Yet White's version has actually been far more influential on the modern dialogue, despite the fact that its subtler posture has not really been much gentler in its effect on traditional Christian belief. The late Stephen Jay Gould understood better than most others precisely what White's warfare thesis was really about. White did not formulate his thesis about warfare between religion and science primarily to advance the cause of science, as Gould said, but rather to save religion from its own internal enemies, which White, with Gould's strong approval, saw as, quote, dogmatic theology. That was a term White often used. Um, in White's book, dogmatic theology is a pejorative term for traditional Christian beliefs. He was writing at a time when medieval was a pejorative also. He often described traditional Christian beliefs as medieval. Gould was right. 
White did not want science completely to eradicate religion in a Dawkinsian manner, as a careful reading of, his, of the title of White's book indicates. White's title, again, was The Warfare of, Theo of Science with Theology in Christendom. It was theology, not religion, that was the source of the problem in his opinion. White wanted only to see the ice of dogmatic theology melt inexorably and quietly into the mighty river of advancing scientific knowledge. That metaphor I've just used comes right from White, comes from the flowery preface that he wrote for his book while he was the American minister to Russia in St. Petersburg. Please listen carefully as I read it, for this is exactly what White meant by the warfare of science with theology as you look at a picture of St. Petersburg in the winter. My book is ready for the printer, and as I begin this preface, my eye lights upon the crowd of Russian peasants at work on the Neva under my windows. With pick and shovel, they're letting the rays of the April sun into the great ice barrier which binds together the modern keys and the old granite fortress where, the lie, where lie the bones of the Romanov czars. This barrier is already weakened. It is widely decayed, in many places thin, and everywhere treacherous. But it is, as a whole, so broad, so crystallized about old boulders, so embedded in shallows, so wedged into crannies on either shore, that it is a great danger. The waters from thousands of swollen streamlets above are pressing behind it. Wreckage and refuse are piling up against it. Everyone knows that it must yield. But there is danger. That it may, in that it may resist the pressure too long and break suddenly, wrenching even the granite keys from their foundations, bringing desolation to a vast population and leaving after the subsidence of the flood a widespread residue of slime, a fertile breeding bed for the germs of disease. But the patient mujiks, that is the serfs, the patient mujiks are doing the right thing. The barrier exposed more and more to the warmth of spring by the scores of channels they are making, will break away gradually, and the river will flow on beneficent and beautiful. My work in this book, he said, is like that of the Russian mujik on the Neva. I simply try to aid in letting the light of historical truth into that decaying mass of outworn thought which attaches the modern world to medieval conceptions of Christianity and which still lingers among us, a most serious barrier to religion and morals and a menace to the whole normal evolution of society. Now we now know that White could hold such a view only by constructing a false history of Christianity and science. Yet his influence on subsequent thinkers has been nothing short of profound. Even those who deny that science and religion are engaged in an ongoing inevitable conflict often agree with the warfare view as White understood it, but I think they don't realize it. Traditional theology has proved utterly unable to engage science in fruitful conversation on this view. And therefore, we must now fully reformulate our theological understanding of the world in order fully to embrace modern science. Recall what Shaler Matthews said about the impact of science on religion 
in the quotation I read at the start of this paper. Orthodox theology was felt to be incompatible with intellectual integrity. Now, Matthews was a member of the Hyde Park Baptist Church in Chicago, which is now the Hyde Park Union Church. A fellow member, philosopher and intellectual historian Edwin Arthur Burt, who was a secular humanist, he signed the Secular Humanist Manifesto of 1933, commented sharply on the views of his fellow members of the church in his book, Religion in an Age of Science, written in 1930. Considering the historical conflict of religion and science, he wrote, how much can I still believe is the question pathetically asked. Beginning with two score or more doctrinal articles, there ensues a process of elimination and attenuation till today in liberal circles, the minimum creed seems to have been reduced to three tenets. Belief in God, confidence in immortality, and conviction of spiritual uniqueness in Jesus of Nazareth. Thus the pathetic game of give what must, hold what can, continues. And Bert himself uh, probably believed in none of those three things. All of this resonates with the conclusions of Princeton embryologist Edwin Grant Conklin, who was a leading public intellectual before World War II. You see him on the cover of Time magazine in the late 1930s. Um, a biologist who, slow, who had uh, begun his career as a very traditional, devout Methodist, who slowly gave up his Christian beliefs as he accepted scientific naturalism. He saw his own spiritual journey as one that, as he said, quote, orthodox friends, unquote, might interpret as, quote, descending steps, unquote, leading him further from the Methodist faith of his youth. It's impossible for me to read this without thinking of Brian's stepwise descent. My gradual loss of faith in many orthodox beliefs, he recalled near the end of his life, came inevitably with increasing knowledge of nature and growth of a critical sense. Especially important in this regard was his reading of White and Draper. These books, he said, showed the impossibility of harmonizing many traditional doctrines of theology with the demonstrations of modern science. Thus, it was no longer possible for him to be religious in a traditional sense. And when he lectured to a Philadelphia audience on the religion of science in the mid-1920s, he identified the essential contents of his faith by denying a personal God, miracles, supernatural revelation, personal immortality, and the efficacy of prayer. He says in his notes right here, um, the religion of science is very different from the religion of tradition and revelation. There's no personal God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. There's no miracles, no supernatural revelation, no personal immortality, etc. So this is his litany of no's, his confession of no's. Conklin's former student, Samuel Christian Schmucker, who was grandson of the famous Lutheran theologian Simon Samuel Schmucker, is a further example. Now almost unknown to people, he was in the early 20th century a nationally prominent popularizer of evolution and eugenics. 
in a pamphlet that was published widely and circulated by Shaler Matthews in the year following the Scopes trial, Schmucker said that the laws of nature which had produced evolution were, quote, not the fiat of Almighty God, but the manifestation in nature of the presence of the indwelling God, end quote. Thus they were, quote, eternal even as God is eternal, unquote. Gravitation, he thought, is inherent in the nature of bodies. It was not put there by a higher power. Casting aside all vestiges of a transcendent creator in favor of a holy eminent God, he constructed an evolutionary theism that made God co-eternal with the world, indistinguishable from the laws of nature and the evolutionary progress they had produced. It is hardly surprising that Schmucker was an advocate of eugenics, which he saw as the means by which humans could work with the imminent God to eliminate sinful behaviors. In light of the examples I've just offered, it is not hard to agree with Ian Barber's observation that the modernists emphasized God's imminence, often to the virtual exclusion of transcendence. And in some cases, God was viewed as a force within a cosmic process that was itself divine. Yet the views and attitudes of these modernists, that which is not scientific, ought no longer to be affirmed by the Christian theologian, would fit perfectly into the intellectual world of 2010. As David Ray Griffin has observed, modern liberal theologies have achieved a reconciliation of science with theology at the expense of its religious content. Thus, when the late Arthur Peacock spoke of God as the transcendent yet imminent creator, he did not mean the maker of heaven and earth who literally became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin and raised bodily from the grave. Or when John Haught testified at the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial, he declined to affirm the historicity of the resurrection. If the disciples had brought a video camera into the upper room, it would not have captured an image of the risen Christ. The camera lacked faith, apparently, and therefore it could not see. Now, not everyone has fallen victim to warfare thinking. John Polkinghorne has seen perhaps more clearly than anyone else the ongoing influence of White's attitude in modern theology. The scientific avenue into theological thinking will seek to give due weight to science, he grants, but it would be fatal to allow it to become a scientific takeover bid, affording no more than a religious gloss on a basically naturalistic account. Concerning the crucial question of the degree of accommodation required of the historic faith in its expression in an age of science, he adds, there is a spectrum of response running from assimilation to imminence. That's what he says. Those given to assimilation try to obtain the most immediate and accessible correlation between scientific and religious thinking. Jesus Christ will still be accorded a preeminence, he says, but this will be understood in the functional and evolutionary terms of a new emergent. Christ is the pioneer of what humanity can become under the guidance of divine inspiration. Now, if I may speak more bluntly than poking horn's own cautious prose here, the assimilationist approach follows the modernists, throwing divine transcendence and the deity of Christ on the altar of science. The consonantist, on the other hand, Polkinghorne says, while wishing to ensure that theological understanding is consistent with what science tells us, 
about the structure and history of the physical world, will insist that theology is as entitled as science to retain those categories which its experience has demanded that it shall use, however counterintuitive they might be. Jesus Christ will continue to be understood in incarnational terms. Now, as Polkinghorn realizes, the resurrection is the pivot on which Christian belief turns. Without it, it seems to me that the story of Jesus' life and its continuing aftermath is not fully intelligible, so he has said. In his book, The Faith of a Physicist, which takes the form of a commentary on the Nicene Creed, Polkinghorne devotes most of a chapter to exploring whether the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead is one that is credible for us today, he says. Along the way, he rejects the view associated with Joseph Renan and Rudolf Bultmann, quote, that what happened was only a faith event in the minds of the disciples. And instead, he places the source of doubt where it actually belongs, not in science itself, but in the skepticism of David Hume, whose confidence that the laws of nature were known with a certainty that extends even into realms of unprecedented and hitherto unexplored phenomena is one that was certainly falsified by the history of science subsequent to the 18th century. And it could never be pressed to dispose of an event like the resurrection of Jesus, which claims to be a particular act of God in a unique circumstance. I close with a paradox. Polkinghorne is a modern thinker, but pre-modern enough to appreciate postmodern efforts to demythologize science without embracing complete relativism. In my opinion, he understands better than most other contemporary theologians what my discipline, the history and philosophy of science, has actually done for theology. He not only understands, as many others do, uh, that the warfare model that was critically, uncritically accepted for most of the 20th century is historically bankrupt. He also understands that this negates the pseudo-historical underpinning of many modern efforts to demythologize theology in the name of science. Above all, he realizes that one of the most serious consequences of the modern embrace of White's attitude, the flight from transcendence, has left theology unable adequately to ground Christian hope and less able to converse productively with science as a dialogue partner of equal standing. And in identifying philosopher David Hume rather than scientist Charles Darwin as the bogeyman, Polkinghorne advances a more helpful conversation between science and religion. Thank you again for listening. For those who came in late, we announced earlier that because these papers are very similar, pick up on one another, we will hold questions until the, sec the end. That's the way the program is set up. Now, I did bring a handout to nerd the back. I, if you haven't picked one up, please, please grab one because most of the material is on the handout. I need to give you the mic. Do you want, do you want this? This one, work, this one works, okay. Yeah, no, I'm 